0: This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Professor Frankie Bailey to the program. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Frankie Bailey is a professor at the School of Criminal Justice at the State University of New York at uh, Albany. Before she was at... uh, U. Albany. She has been there since 1990. She was an administrator and associate professor of criminal justice at Kentucky State University in Frankfort, Kentucky. Why did you get into this uh, this field of scholarship? Well,
1: actually, I came about it in a roundabout way. I. Um, I was an undergraduate at Virginia Tech, and it started out uh, in pre-vet. I was going to be a veterinarian. I uh, got into psychology and English and had one course in criminology at Virginia Tech and mentioned to my psychology uh, advisor how much I had enjoyed that. And I was thinking about grad school, and he said, well, why did you try criminal justice? I had no idea what it was. Well, I-, I ended up here and discovered you. it wasn't quite Sherlock Holmes or what I thought it would be, uh, because I had actually came to Albany. That was the place he suggested. I didn't know any other place to apply, so I actually ended up at the best school in the country, but it was because he adhered of this program.
0: Huh? The best school in the country, the University of Albany, Trimbley? Yeah, Trimble. we
1: always rank one or two. We're about two in the country right now according to rankings, but within percentage points. But that's because uh, many of our alum have gone out and started programs or are working in programs around the country. So, yeah, we're jewel in the crown of our university. How
0: about that? Now, I guess I don't know much about this as a field, as it will become, or probably as a parent already. But I thought that criminal justice was something that future cops took, but it seems like it's much more than that.
1: Well, it depends on the program you're in. There are some programs that are intended, uh, that are, much focus on policing and law enforcement. We have an interdisciplinary program here with specialists from a variety of fields, and that's not true of all the programs. So it depends on whether they have uh, mainly an undergraduate program or master's and PhD, and we actually started out as a PhD-granting program and added master's and then added undergraduate.
0: Ah, so you went from the top to the With, basic.
1: Uh, backgrounds in economics and psychology and law and criminal justice and a variety of fields.
0: Well, uh, it says here in your, in your uh, bio that your academic pursuits focus on crime history, crime, and mass media uh, popular culture. Uh, you've done research on topics related to images of victims and offenders. Okay I mean that's can, can you expand on that a little bit as to what your interests are
1: well yeah I actually uh, I'm working on a book and it's taken a while. I'm finally done with the first draft, but it's about dress and appearance in uh, American crime and justice, and related to that as I started out because I teach popular culture, a class on crime in mass media, I was looking at uh, images, I was looking at people in movies, those movies I was showing my students, particularly Double Indemnity, the Ruth Snyder case, and I was going back to look at the news coverage of certain cases, and for example, in that particular case, uh, do you know that case?
0: Not, not really too well. Uh, I, I know the name. They
1: did a movie, was inspired by that, but James M. Cain, the novelist, was sitting in a courtroom as the case was going on. But Ruth Snyder and her hus- uh, her lover, Judd Gray, were uh, accused of killing her husband, and they were in court and on trial and later on uh, Deaf Row, and Ruth was uh, covered in the media, not only in terms of what she was saying, but also in how she was dressing. And they were talking about you know, uh, who was actually the uh, mastermind behind killing the husband. Was it Judd or was it Ruth? And that got me into thinking a lot about clothing and brought me to some research that I've been doing for several years now, looking at uh, moving from the colonial period to the present, looking at appearance and dress. And I'm getting to the point where I'm looking about ready to go to mug shots and other things. But uh, I was focusing originally only on you know, appearance in terms of clothing. But then I began to think about it in terms of bodies and faces and implicit bias related to color, for example, or to race. And so that's where I am with that. And also I write mysteries. I think a lot about how people look in terms of describing fictional characters. So that combination of things.
0: Yeah. I I did read that as well about you, that you write uh, uh, mysteries yourself. Um, One topic you mentioned in your last answer about, you did mention the phrase mugshots. And that's one topic on which you've commented recently in a newspaper article for the Times Union. Um, apparently, there's this big treasure trove of early mugshots in, uh, in Albany uh, that, uh, I, I don't know, if, I guess, I was going to say, I wonder if people even knew it was there. Well, I guess most people didn't know it was there. Did you know? Most
1: people don't. I had seen it mentioned elsewhere, and I knew it was there. Uh, I was not, you know, I didn't know how vast it is. So I'm really excited about going down and spending some time with it, but I've been, you know, after seeing mention of it, um, because I've done other research at the Hall of Records. I was planning to go down, and I'm still planning to go down and spend some time, just getting a better sense of it, looking at it. Although, you know, there are some of these. Uh, images in the newspaper in the Times Union. It's the front page story for that, so it's easy to find online on their website as well. But I'd like to see it firsthand just to get a better sense of this.
0: And where is it located? What is that Hall of Records? Yeah, is it a state facility or city or?
1: It's Albany County.
0: Ah, the county. All right. I, I mean, th- this—you know—it's maybe a too specific a question, but you know where it's located?
1: Yeah, it's in downtown Albany. I'm trying to think of the street. It's where off of Broadway. I—I I mean, look at that real fast as we're talking. It's just downtown, though. It's, you can see uh, our dog. <laughs>
0: oh, the Nipper dog.
1: Yeah, Hollow uh, Records. It's off of that street. Go on, and I'll tell you in a
0: moment. All righty. Well, I was going to bring up uh, something that's mentioned in the article that these were mug shots, you know, from like a like hundred years ago, or maybe even more, and that these particular—I don't know if it's these particular mug shots or the style of mug shot was developed by a French police officer and researcher, Alphonse Bertillon. If that's maybe how I would think you'd pronounce his name.
1: Yeah. It, but depending on who's pronouncing it, Bertillon, Bertillon, but Bertillon is probably the most correct pronunciation. That address is ninety-five uh, Taboli Street.
0: Okay, ninety-five and it's downtown. So, had you heard of Alphonse Bertillon?
1: Uh, yeah, we uh, because you know, in criminology, criminal justice, we look at uh, the evolution of criminal identification, crime detection, and so he comes along at a period when uh, there's some focus on uh, another researcher uh, named Lombroso, who is known as the father of positivist criminology. He was into measurements and uh, the idea of the criminal man, and so we got Bertillon coming along and France at about the same time and taking a different approach and not agreeing with Lombroso that you you can actually tell from measurements whether or not someone's a criminal but that was the same time period and they're both moving towards uh the early 20th century when fingerprints are going to replace what they're doing but bertillon you it's very systematic in terms of what he's doing so he becomes uh he offers this idea of measurements that's later carried over into other types of systems, and he's looking at crime scene photography and, uh, you know, sort of paving the way for uh, what's going to be done later by other researchers.
0: Hmm. Now, but why is he taking measurements if he doesn't think there's, uh, you know, a a criminal type or something like that?
1: Well, Well, he, uh, someone called him, you know, he was in a... Family that was very much into statistics and data collection. His father and his grandfather and others. He was uh, sort of never do well, and he ended up uh, working as a clerk in a police department the, in France. And so he's in the basement, and he's you know coding all these uh, measurements, You know he's looking at the carts and what they're using, and they don't really have a way of identifying someone when he's brought in as uh, a someone who's been a suspect in a prior case or been convicted in a prior case. And he's sitting there, he's trying to figure out, you know, how can I improve the system? And he comes up with this very systematic approach that involves these measurements in a way of Finding the measurements in the file, because that was the other problem, even if you, you know, had measurements, being able to find them if you're a police officer looking to see if this is someone who's been there before. And so he comes up with a system, you know, 11 measurements, and then he goes down to a subset of those measurements, mm-hmm. of the head and the face, and another subsystem, and makes it a searchable system, which was uh, something that was had not been done before in France, and it was later you know, coming to America. By the 1880s, mm-hmm.
0: late 1880s. So, so it, he, it's he sees it. He does the measurements. It's an identification process, as yeah, as you say, it's kind of supplanted by using fingerprints today.
1: Yeah, what she wasn't particularly impressed with, but <laughs> but you, know, because he defended his system, he thought it was uh, you know, So it's a fairly elaborate system. Apparently you. Know, I've never tried to use it, obviously, but from what I read about it, the problem for you know, the ordinary police officer was uh, it's like you know, someone adjusting a scale and the, the uh, tool is not adjusted properly or if the person's like, seated properly or other things, or if the person doing the measurements just misreads then you could fail to get a match or come up with an inaccurate match. And so it wasn't as easy to use as he thought it was. hmm They require some training to use it properly.
0: We're talking with Frankie Bailey. Uh, She's a professor at the University at Albany, New York's School of Criminal Justice, one of the top-ranked criminal justice uh, schools in the nation. We'll be back with her in just a moment. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast, and our 2019 Fund Drive is underway, our GoFundMe campaign. Doing pretty well at the start of the uh, campaign. Uh, The uh, place to go is GoFundMe.com forward slash 2019 dash the dash historians. And you can uh, make a donation. They'll they'll walk you through it. Uh, There's also a way you can uh, do this by uh, sending a check in the mail. And to find out more about that, just uh, look elsewhere on our homepage, which is BobCudmore.com. And thank you very much. Frankie Bailey's uh, with us. She's a, a criminal justice professor at the State University of New York at Albany. And uh, we've b- been going on for for a while now on the subject of, of mugshots, which entered the the language or entered use in criminal justice, um, well, over 100 years ago. But they're really big, aren't they, Professor? I mean, everybody knows what a mugshot is. You see you see them on TV all the time. And, um, well, anyway, it's yeah, a big...
1: Facebook and Instagram and, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they're they problematic and they're still around, but you know, because of technology, they're being replaced by... Obviously, DNA, you know, is, uh, provides a more definitive identification in a mugshot because two people could look alike, you know. Uh, and even with the measurements you know, that are taken, your know, mugshots are not infallible. And, but they it provides uh, easily you know, if someone's getting a quick take on if, for example, there's some type of search underway or something else, uh, then they're useful. And they're, you know, photographs are still taken and they go into files and they're there. But they're not necessarily they're not the best means of identification anymore
0: hmm. but, and, and they have the certain style you know the front shot of the face and then the side shots Is they still yeah. do that right mm-hmm. and also i believe you said in the article that these mug shots have reinforced stereotypes uh, for example stereotyping african-american men
1: well, yeah, there's a problem in general with you know the images of African American men that goes back, of course, to the history of uh, slavery and the aftermath when. Uh, in the South, that discussion about the new Negro criminal and the idea that African-American men and women, but particularly men, free from slavery, were becoming criminals and dangerous. And so there's, uh, in the minds of many people, it can be a subconscious connection, an implicit bias, but the idea of the association of African-American men and danger or violent crime, as opposed to white men, which uh, most people seem to associate more, particularly non, particularly white people looking at white photos, uh, particularly associate those men with nonviolent offenses. So there's a kind of stereotype of African-American men as dangerous. And the darker, uh, it seems there's some research, a growing field of research that shows, in terms of color, the darker the skin of the person in the photo, uh, in person, the more likely the person, the witness, the viewer is to associate that person with danger and violence, mm-hmm. and it's uh, you know an implicit bias in Many people, and not something they may sup- may consciously do, but it does mean that in terms of identification and misidentification, that African American men were risk mm. than white men.
0: And today. The posting of um, mugshots on websites has become a commercial enterprise, and Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York has proposed halting the public release of mugshots and arrest information to the to the media. Uh, he's got a lot of pushback on that. What do you think of—well, uh, first, maybe we should give the governor his due. Uh, apparently, he wants to stop this practice of, of people, you know, uh, selling the mugshots—or Kind of blackmail. They they come to somebody and say, "Well, you know, we got your mugshot. We'll take it down for so much money, and and so forth." I mean, is he onto a, something good here, Governor Cuomo?
1: Well, I'm going to withhold an opinion of whether it's good or bad, but I can see the logic because there are people have mugshots out there for all kinds of reasons, and. Uh, so the idea that you know a site could collect those websites or anyone could collect those websites and then have it out there it is i mean that's the downside of you know technology if you're someone who's arrested for a minor offense and your mugshot is out there and it's forever out there on uh the internet and social media and someone may stumble across your mugshot uh shot one day and you know, it may disqualify you for a job or something else for what you're fully qualified. But uh, And, you know, it can begin, you could be a college student, for example. You have someone who gets drunk or in an accident or something and has now cleaned up your act and your mugshot's still out there. So that's the downside. Mm. But on the other hand, you have people, if, if someone's uh, been convicted of a, a serious, a dangerous crime, then... Some people would argue that in terms of keeping the public informed, uh, there's an appropriate place for those mugshots. And ideally, those mugshots are being controlled by a government agency, if you can depend on them to uh, be judicious in how they use those mugshots, as opposed to someone running a website where they're offering mugshots without clarification about the offenses and other things.
0: Mm. And also, maybe one other thought on mugshots, uh, and I, I think you've addressed this already, I, I've seen in some you know, TV shows and whatever, you know, the, there's a crime and they're looking for the suspect and, and the witness or the person who was, had the crime committed on that person goes through books of mugshots to see if they can, you can find the perpetrator. Um, and that doesn't seem, uh, well, does that work well or is doesn't work too well?
1: Well, yeah, the problem with having people, and this is the problem of eyewitness identification, you know, uh, people, even when they're seeing other people in person, someone who's a witness may be a victim or ledge victim or may be someone who witnesses something traumatic. And if they're brought in and shown photos or looking at people in a lineup, you know, the, the fact that you know, often crimes happen so quickly, Uh, And often people are not paying attention when something Mm -hmm. happens or about to happen. And so being brought in, eyewitness testimony is problematic Uh, unless the witness is taught to focus, uh, is someone who is trained to look for uh, identifying scars, marks, voices, whatever, or has time to think of doing that but often when something's happening people are afraid or angry or not paying attention and so having them come in and try to identify people based on mugshots or lineups or it becomes you know not necessarily very productive in terms of finding the actual offender.
0: We're talking with Frankie Bailey, a criminal justice department professor at the State University of New York at Albany. Let me move on to some of your other activities. And one thing that kind sort of jumped out at me, I think because I I, I know the other person you, you work with on this, and also I know the series. I, I've written a few uh, local history books. Um, books for um the uh, Arcadia uh publishing company that they specialize in that and i see that you and alice green did a book called wicked albany what was that about
1: yeah i had uh for my dissertation i wrote a book about uh i wrote a dissertation about my hometown of danville virginia uh and you know when we had the opportunity to do something uh it, you know i once I arrived back in Albany, I began to collect the same type of information, do research on Albany during Prohibition. And so we had the chance to do um, a book. And so I, you know, teamed with Alice, who's an expert on, you know, Photography. She, I don't know if you know, she's a great photographer. And so uh, we team up together to find the photos and to draw on the stuff I'd already collected. And of course, she you know, has lived in Albany for a very long time and was able mm-hmm. to uh, you know, proofread and edit and We came up with this one voice as we're working together in terms of what we're looking at and what we're focusing on. But it's about Albany uh, during the Prohibition era from about 1919 uh, through Prohibition. And then we have an epilogue where we're looking at... uh, Albany after the end of Prohibition and into the modern period. But what we wanted to see was how Albany um, was like or different from other cities across the country during the Prohibition era.
0: Well, was it like other con- cities or was it somehow different?
1: I always thought Well, the it was m- like other cities that had a, a, a political machine. <laughs> I was going to say. I mean, uh, we're dealing with machine politics.
0: Yeah, I always thought the machine kind of controlled Prohibition in a way, right? Or, you know, they yeah, didn't- the
1: machine. Machine uh, machine, in many ways, you know, define how Prohibition would look in a given city. So by the time we got to Prohibition, the Democrats were in charge before them. There had been a Republican machine, and then we get to the Democratic machine, or the Democrats. And there is some debate about you know, the role that the machine played in Crime, whether they're keeping crime out or involved or whatever. But for example, when we look at Legs Diamond and the other criminals from New York City and uh, who are coming up this way and you have summer homes and other things, and legs had was involved and the uh, rum running the alcohol traffic from Canada down to New York City and Albany was about midway and so we had those criminals sort of circling around Albany but not coming into the city and apparently it was in part because the machine uh was keeping them out, but we did have gambling going on in Albany, so that was uh and complaints from the Republicans in Saratoga about the fact that Albany had gambling going on, and it was being suppressed in Saratoga. So
0: mm.
1: um, so it depends on the type of crime, organized crime we're talking about.
0: And uh, we have uh, five minutes left now. Uh, Frankie Bailey has been uh, chatting with us. He's professor at School of Criminal Justice at SUNY Albany. Um, you have written a number of books in a mystery series uh, featuring crime historian Lizzie Stewart. Can you tell us about that?
1: yeah Lizzie is a southern crime historian she's based in the south uh, and I actually came up with the series because I had done research as I mentioned on my hometown Danville, Virginia, the last capital of the Confederacy, but a really old, fascinating city and one of the things I was looking at in my dissertation was uh, you know crime and justice during that period of from like the early 20th century to about the 1940s. And I come across uh, a lynching that I didn't recognize as a lynching at first because uh, there was no hanging. It involved a situation where a man shot a police officer when they came. Uh, to question him about beating his wife, and it was the people in a crowd who ended up setting the house on fire, and he ran out, and they shot him, but the police were there, and they quickly brought things under control, and the mayor arrived, and the kind of horrendous lynchings that went on elsewhere in the Deep South didn't happen there. It was a, a kind of thing that one thing led to another, but I wanted to fictionalize that particular event because I wanted to look at uh the history of violence in the South and how it played out in different ways in the upper south and the lower south. And so I created this character who was a crime historian and what Lizzie does in the books that are being reissued now, uh, is that she is she does much what I do and I when I'm writing a book about her I follow in her footsteps and I go to the places she would go and I do what she would do and then I insert my fictional crime into that in the first book, she's actually in Cornwall, England, because I went there as I was working on the series. But uh, by and that was sort of a Agatha Christie-type private hotel murder of housekeeper crime. Uh, but by the next uh, book, she's back in uh, Piedmont huh. at Piedmont University in Gallagher, Virginia, my f- uh, fictional town, and uh, she's about to begin her career there. In My lynching is now fictionalized, and she's dealing with the past and the present. And that happens in all of the uh, books in the series. And I'm working on the sits now that the first five are coming out. And then I also have a a near-future police procedural series with two novels set in Albany. Um, And so those are kind of interesting as well. For me, particularly fun, because I was dealing with Alice in Wonderland in one, and also not so fun, the assassination of Lincoln by John Wilkes Booth, which had Albany ties, and then in the second, uh, What the Flyer Saw, I was dealing with the murder of a uh, mortician and undertaker huh. in his uh, funeral home.
0: We have not I much... T-
1: funeral director is the phrase I'm looking for, <laughs> okay. a funeral director.
0: What, what was a tie uh, to the Lincoln assassination to Albany?
1: Well, because Lincoln, both Lincoln and Booth were here in Albany. In fact, uh, Lincoln and Booth were both here in 1861. Lincoln was here uh, stopping with his wife, and he stayed at a hotel in downtown Albany. And Booth was here performing with his traveling troupe of actors uh, at one of the local theaters. He had injured his arm, and he may have been in a crowd watching Lincoln as he arrived. Uh, but he performed that night, and then later a few months later, uh booth came back, and he was with his lover, one of the actresses in the troupe and They got into a lover 's quarrel, and she um tried to kill him uh wasn't successful obviously uh, and then years later, when uh, Lincoln was killed at fort theater uh one of the the couple. In uh, the box with Mrs. And Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln were uh, a major and his fiancée from Albany. Uh, they replaced the Grants who were uh, going elsewhere. I think they were, as I recall, going to visit their son. And the major uh, tried to save Lincoln and was seriously injured. And then when Booth was uh, surrounded at the farmhouse, one of the people involved and probably the person who shot him was a uh, former hatter, hat maker from Troy really? who live in Albany.
0: Professor Bailey, but we're we're just, uh, just out of time. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you, Frankie Bailey, professor and author. She's a professor at the School of Criminal Justice at the State University of New York at Albany. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.